Welcome back to G.I. Pearl, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Sorry for a bit of a delay between episodes. I was on vacation for a little while, and uh, I was also experimenting with some format changes to the podcast. But for now, we'll just keep it to me giving you my thoughts on the articles that I've read recently. So if you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast so others can find it. And just spread the word and tell your colleagues about it. Even more exciting news, we have about 4,000 listeners now. So I guess I should keep making this thing. But enough about me, let's crack open the journals. American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society released new guidelines for management of cyclic vomiting syndrome. These guidelines are not very long and have evidence that is mostly low to moderate level of evidence and a bunch of consensus statements. But this is all we really have at this time. I'll just summarize the highlights for you. The first and the only strong recommendation is to use tricyclic antidepressants as first-line treatment for cyclic vomiting syndrome. Then statements 2, 3, 4, and 5 are conditional recommendations for alternatives to CCAs, which include topiramate, aprepitant, zonisamide, and levetiracetam, as well as CoQ10 and riboflavin. Statements 6, 7, and 8 give conditional recommendations for abortive medicines for acute episodes of cyclic vomiting, sumatriptan, ondansetron, and aprepitant. Statement 9 tells you to look for comorbid conditions such as anxiety, depression, and treat these accordingly. And last statement recommends complementary therapies for meditation, biofeedback, and relaxation. That is it. Two recommendations I have for the editors of this recommendation paper. You don't need to shorten names of drugs with two initials as amitriptyline has been shortened to AT throughout the paper. I mean, these are guidelines from the very society that publishes the journal, so I don't think the space is an issue. It just makes it very confusing. And the other one is that if you're going to make a list of drugs on an algorithm and you have plenty of white space around the boxes of the algorithm, please put the doses of the drugs so people can actually use the algorithm. It just makes it so much easier. And that's all I have to say about that. The Asian Pacific Association of Study of Liver Disease recently released their registry data of drug-induced liver injury. They looked at over 3,000 patients with liver injury to see what kind of things cause it. And about 10% of all patients had drug as a cause of this, but over 70% of these drugs were complementary and alternative medicines, closely followed by anti-tuberculosis drugs. Mortality for this group was 46.5%. Once again, this data is from the Asian Pacific Association Study of Liver Disease. I guess one point to convey here is that remember that medicine from last podcast where herbal medicine combination was used for constipation? I guess another way of looking at this now is that herbal and complementary medicines have been causing liver failure for thousands of years. Split prep is very popular these days with patients and gastroenterologists, and there already was a meta-analysis and a review of available studies back in 2015 showing that it's the best thing out there. So I guess this is the modern update a few years later, published in American Journal of Gastroenterology, showing the efficacy of split-dose prep for polyp detection. 28 trials were included with over 8,000 patients comparing split-dose, which is where you drink your colonoscopy prep half the night before and half in the morning of the procedure, compared to just drinking the whole thing at night. They looked at adenoma detection rate as an outcome, and guess what? No surprise there was an increased detection rate of adenomas with a risk ratio of 1.26. For advanced adenomas, it was even better at 1.53. And for sessile serrated polyps, it was huge, 2.48. 
I guess what this says to us is that if you are not doing split dose prep and if you want to improve your practice's ADR by 26%, just switch to split dose prep. Yes, another daily review. This time it's from New England Journal of Medicine and written by none other than J.H. Hofnagel, the man behind Liver Talks website, which I log into at least once a month at this point. Takeaway from this review. Well, for one, there are three types of dilly, direct. This one is easy. It is a dose-related, predictable, and rapid type. Think of Tylenol as a prime example of this. Here you get acute hepatic necrosis as the dominant form of injury in direct dilly. Idiosyncratic liver injury is the one where you've been on a drug for years or had multiple exposures and suddenly you got hit. Think about Augmentin as the prime example of this type of injury. It's unpredictable and can be both cholestatic and hepatocellular or both. Indirect is the hardest one, I think, to understand. Here, the action of a drug rather than the drug itself is what causes the injury. Think of a drug that causes you to develop NAFLD like risperidone or haloperidol, or chronic steroid use. So that's not what I think about when I think about DILI. But another good example of indirect effect would be the new checkpoint inhibitor drugs used in cancer causing hepatitis. Another note here is that not all hepatologists agree that this indirect DILI should be even a thing. I guess that's one way of saying is like your wife led you to drinking, so your wife is the indirect drug-induced liver injury agent. There is a very useful table, table number three, which gives you a list of top 13, why 13, I don't know, but top 13 drugs in terms of frequency of idiosyncratic DILI prescription drug causes. Augmentin is number one with 10% of all DILI, by the way. So overall, a great summary of drug-induced liver injury pathogenesis, classification, and patterns of injury. As far as I remember, there were no consensus guidelines on what to do with radiation practitis. I've seen folks use APC, thermal probes, even cryo. This used to also be treated with 4% formalin spray. Well, ASG published new guidelines on what exactly we're supposed to be doing. Not that they're super helpful, but they're there. And here's what I mean. Recommendation 1. In patients with chronic radiation proctopathy, we suggest APC, bipolar probes, heater probe, RFA for treatment of bleeding. Insufficient evidence to recommend one over the other. Recommendation 2. Don't use 4% formalin. Recommendation 3. Not enough evidence to recommend newer generation cryoablation system. That's all. So basically, APC versus gold probe is probably the way to go, since these are the easiest to set up and use, and most readily available. All recommendations carry low quality of evidence, but I must say, they did look through a lot of case series and randomized trials to arrive to these conclusions. My guess is that because APC and bipolar probe sort of work, No one is bothering to do a randomized trial to compare them head-to-head. And just, you know, mechanistically, they both kind of work the same. One thing that was only mentioned once was hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is, I guess, considered experimental still. I've used it in a couple patients. Anyone else using it? Eosinophilic esophagitis is a relatively new disease, happens to be one of my favorites. And there's no FDA-approved treatments for it, so I guess nobody's making money on it just yet. This is going to change, I'm sure, and here's an example of why. Gastro published a randomized trial of oral budesonide tablets for EOE. Taking this budesonide 1 mg pill twice a day reduced the eosinophil counts quite dramatically, with over 90% of patients in histologic remission at week 6. But wait a minute, isn't budesonide bad for you? What about cortisol levels, etc., weight gain? Well, they measured all that stuff. 
and there was no difference between treatment groups in serum cortisol levels. So the problem with diet in EOE is that you can place a patient on six food elimination diet, seven, eight food elimination diet, but all that stuff is hard to do. And if milk and wheat account for over 50% of symptoms, those are really hard to eliminate from the diet. Inhalers and sprayers such as fluticasone work, but hard to use. And budesonide slurry, which is very popular, is hard to make. And only a few pharmacies actually compound it. So if you have a low-dose pill, I guess it could be a good alternative. This study was also funded by the maker of these new budesonide pills, by the way. A few episodes back, I reviewed a randomized trial of extending interval for surveillance colonoscopy for sesoserrated polyposis syndrome from yearly to every other year, which basically made no difference in terms of occurrence of colorectal cancer. With still high rates of cancer detected though, now there is another paper that is published in GIE on this topic. It comes from Doug Rex's group out of Ohio, and they looked retrospectively at 150 patients with sesoserrated polyposis syndrome, and apparently their docs based their surveillance recommendations based on how they felt about polyp burden meaning that if they felt that endoscopic control was achieved, no polyps were left, or at least no polyp was left over one centimeter. They had 87 patients achieving endoscopic control that way, and it took about 2.8 colonoscopies to get there over 20.4 months, with a mean number of polyps taken out was 27, which means that these patients really, really did have sesalcerated polyposis syndrome. It means they weren't like on the edges of what we define sesalcerated polyposis syndrome with four or five polyps. Maybe they barely meet the criteria. These were real patients with SPS. Out of these patients, about 60 were told to come back in two years instead of the standard yearly. On surveillance, there was zero colon cancer or surgeries that were recommended, which is great, with about seven polyps being a mean number of polyps removed, most less than one centimeters. So it sounds like a safe strategy, doesn't it? Well, I guess maybe. I think that the WHO definition of sesalcerated polyposis syndrome is a very conservative one, with some patients who fit the criteria actually end up not having the polyposis syndrome, so they're not going to have any polyps for many colonoscopies and follow-up exam yearly, which is one reason why everyone thinks extending intervals is a good idea, and apparently it seems to work. So I have two takeaways from this paper. If you clear all the polyps out, that's great. You can probably relax and do colonoscopies less often. I probably would wait for the new guidelines before you jump on that bandwagon. The second takeaway is more actionable. If you find lots of polyps, it is probably okay to try to resect them all endoscopically and not send patients for a full colectomy because we worry about colon cancer. Just keep plucking away at them until you clear the colon. And once you stop seeing any advanced lesions, eventually, it'd probably be okay to extend surveillance to every two years as evidence is accumulating to support this practice. There are many investigational uses for fecal microbiota transplant. One of them is in irritable bowel syndrome. Folks from University of Michigan put together a meta-analysis of the latest findings of FMT4-IBS, and the meta-analysis is published in the Red Journal. They looked at four randomized trials from 2017 and 2018. This stuff is pretty recent. Two studies were positive and two were negative. And overall, there was no difference in outcomes. I think the fact that there's such inconsistency in outcomes for FMT trials speaks volumes about what exactly we're trying to measure here and how confident we are about the accuracy of those measurements. 
especially if we're thinking of going the route of colonoscopy or nasojejunal administration of FMT, and possible benefit, if such even exists, would be so small that it may not be worth the effort in the end. Of course, if somebody comes up with a pill form of FMT that improves symptoms above and beyond what placebo could do, well, then we'll talk. Another interesting paper about FMT comes from Jess Allegretti from the Brigham, and she's running several trials for fecal microbiota transplant, and one of them is for primary sclerosing cholangiopathy, PSC. Why? I guess the fact that up to 80% of patients with PSC end up having some sort of inflammatory bowel disease, mostly ulcerative colitis, and there are no therapies currently approved for treatment of PSC, so why not try FMT? This is a small pilot trial, and 10 patients had FMT, 9 of these patients had ulcerative colitis, and 1 had Crohn's disease, and 3 out of 10 patients actually had an appreciable decrease in alkaline phosphatase, which is probably just random chance, because some patients with PSC actually have improvement in alkphos, and nobody can explain why. But the FMT was safe and tolerable, and the alpha for diversity of microbes post-FMT has increased, which is good. That means FMT was successful. Most importantly, though, bile acid profiles did not change after FMT. So if there's any effect, it's not working through changing the bile acid metabolism. So who knows, maybe this is not a viable avenue, but at least it's safe. How often do patients with cirrhosis get hospital-acquired infections? Turns out very often. This next study from the Red Journal, July issue, looked at over 2,000 patients admitted to the hospital with cirrhosis, and 15% of these patients ended up with a nosocomial infection of one sort or another. Why is this important? Well, if MELD is high and your patient is on a transplant list, they will not be eligible for transplant until they clear the infection. Most common infections included... Not surprisingly, pneumonias, UTIs, C. diff, and fungal infections. And the worst part is that the patients who tended to get these infections were with MELDs over 20. So just more evidence that hospitalized cirrhotic patients should be treated as high-risk for nosocomial infections. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. More, I suppose. And the other thing you can do is vaccinate these patients, of course. Now turning over back to IBD, one of the things that's supposed to be part of your IBD checklist is vaccines. All patients with IBD who are on biologics should get a pneumonia vaccine. There were concerns in the past that if you're on an immunomodulator or an anti-TNF, your vaccine may not work, meaning that you may not elicit immunity due to the medicines that they're on. But according to this next study, PCV13 pneumonia vaccine is effective in inducing seroprotection, and it's very good at doing so. And most importantly, it doesn't matter if you're on methotrexate, tyrapurians, steroids, or anti-TNFs, or vedolizumab. All these patients are okay to vaccinate and most will get seroprotection. So good news. Hooray for vaccines again. And it's also important to remember that the rate of pneumonias in patients with IBD is three times higher than the general population. So everybody's celebrating being ranked this or that by the US News and World Report. Oh, our hospital's number one. Yay. Our hospital is number eight. Yay. I guess it would be weird to put a news release saying that your hospital was not ranked. But is there an association between high rankings and actual good outcomes? This is exactly the question that the smart folks from UC Irvine have asked. And this is published in JAMA Surgery. They looked at top-ranked hospitals and compared them with non-ranked hospitals. Specifically, they looked at laparoscopic abdominal procedures at 41 ranked hospitals and 310 non-ranked hospitals. The only thing that was different was the volume of procedures per center, with top-ranked places doing more. 
Another thing that was different was cost, with top-ranked hospitals charging more for same procedures, and this was probably driven by longer hospital stakes, but there was no difference in outcomes. I guess what this means is that patients probably put a lot of stock into their rankings. This study also shows the fact that there's a lot of selection bias when it comes to the top rankings, meaning that only hospitals that are in bed with large academic centers really get ranked high, and if you don't have an affiliation with anybody, there's no chance you're ever going to get ranked. So keep that in mind when you're celebrating your big rankings. I guess another way to look at this question about ranking is to compare top 10 places versus the bottom 10 places. Are there differences in outcomes there? I bet there is. One of my favorite things in JAMA is clinical guideline synopsis. And earlier this year, they released their synopsis of colon cancer screening. I'm sure most of you already know this stuff, but why not review it? The last time colon cancer screening guidelines were updated was in 2017. Major questions today revolve around choice of test. The old saying goes that the best test for colon cancer screening is the one that gets done. According to the Multi-Society Task Force guidelines, based on numerous cohort and case control studies, colonoscopy is tier one test for colon cancer screening. Remember, there's no randomized trial of colonoscopies showing there's a benefit for colon cancer screening. But nonetheless, this is number one in tier one for colon cancer screening. Annual FIT testing is also part of tier one. Tier two, this is where a combination of FIT and DNA marker, otherwise known as ColorGuard and some others, but it is in the second tier along with CT colonography. Flexible sigmoidoscopy every five to 10 years is also tier two, even though this one has actual randomized study behind it as evidence. I guess this has to do with the fact that it doesn't protect you from right-sided colon cancer. Anyway, this is the current state of affairs when it comes to colon cancer screening. The next update, my guess, will come after Dominitz and Robertson complete their FIT versus colonoscopy study. In addition, I guess there will be some sort of an update about early colon cancer screening and adjustment for family history of colon cancer in first-degree relatives. That is all. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for articles that I should read, please send them to info at gipearls.com or find me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Send me your suggestions and don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. Bye-bye.